as the children are receiving their uh, daisy seeds. Uh, Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 9. And this may be a familiar passage to some of you, but I ask that God would open up your ears and your hearts that as we hear it today, you would hear a word from the Lord. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what to do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They had heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Well, God, again, we give you thanks and praise for your holy word. We thank you for the stories that it tells and for the transformation that happens in the lives of your saints. We ask, O oh God, that that same transforming Holy Spirit would be present with us here in this place, yes, even now, that we might leave this place transformed and ready to serve you. Amen. Well, my son Henry is uh, soon to be four years old, and uh, although he is nowhere near reading yet, he is graduating past the stage of those board books. Uh, that oftentimes are better for eating than for reading, right? Um, and one of his favorites has been Eric Carle's story, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. You remember this story? Uh, there's this little measly-looking caterpillar, and he eats a leaf, and then he gets more hungry, and he, he goes through all these different fruits. He eats an apple and two pears and a bunch of plums and all that. And then he just goes buck wild, uh, eating cake and ice cream and pickles and sausages and pie. He gets a terrible stomachache, goes back to leaves again. He gets back on leaves and uh, feels a lot better. Then he gets really fat because of everything he's eaten. And then, aha, the big board book opens, and he is a beautiful butterfly. A great story of transformation. Sorry for the spoilers. Uh, It's been out long enough. Um, the, this, the, the experience that happens to this butterfly is transformation. Say it with me, transformation. 
And, and properly defined, trans, trans, tra- I can't even say it, transformation is a, a metamorphosis during the life cycle of an animal. Or a, another definition is a thorough or dramatic change in form or appearance. Or I really like this one, uh, the induced or spontaneous change from one thing to another. Today we're going to talk about transformation. Transformation is big right now. It's very popular on, uh, on television, just about any do-it-yourself cable channel. Oh, put that one off just for a second. I'll get to big in a second. Uh, there's shows like, uh, shows like Fixer Upper that take a, a scrappy-looking house and they transform it into something that all the neighbors desire. Or the morning shows will, will find some unsuspecting southern woman bundled up in the New York cold and rudely take her into the studio and give her this, uh, this ambush makeover and change her hair and her makeup and her clothing and give her this transformation that she wasn't even asking for. Or, uh, or shows like The Biggest Loser, change their food a bit and, and change the exercise patterns and pretty soon they're a, a lean, mean uh, running machine, at least for the time that the show is on there. Some of you won't believe it, but I'm getting closer uh, to my 20th high school reunion. And uh, at any of these reunions, what you find, of course, is there's transformations that have taken place. Those who were the the biggest bully in the school is now just the nicest guy, or or the mean girls, or, or little Miss Proper, or those athletes who you used to be either intimidated of, or look up to, or amongst the group, you know, he's the very one who now has got the pot belly and the receding hairline. Um, or there's just these transformations. Sometimes all it takes is is something minor, like a haircut or a, a change of wardrobe. But then sometimes there's real transformation. You remember the movie Big? Some of you have seen this. Tom Hanks's character is a little boy who is transformed by the power of this talking genie in a box, uh, and uh, he ends up in, in in the in this in this toy store or in the, in a corporate executive at a, a toy place, and they hand him their newest idea, which is a a skyscraper that turns into a walking skyscraper, and he just says, "What's the point?" He says, "What's the point of this transformation?" And that's the, that's the real question. When transformation happens, it's not just something on the outside. It's got to be something that happens within us. And that's what each and every one of us desire, to truly be changed, whether in some small way or in some big way. Each and every one of us have an area of our lives that we would love for God to transform. And the good news is that God is a God of transformation. Sometimes in big ways, sometimes in small, sometimes in very ordinary ways, sometimes in extraordinary ways. God is a God of transformation. Think about the ways in which God uses very simple and basic elemental things and transforms them into something extraordinary and holy. Like when we gather for communion and we take a a simple loaf of King's Hawaiian bread that you can buy at Brookshire Brothers or H-E-B or Kroger Unless you can't, and they're all sold out on Tuesday when I taught the UMW class and had to serve them King's Hawaiian sliders um, for, uh, <laughs> hey, it still worked. Um, but the bread, this very ordinary bread, uh, becomes something holy and extraordinary. The very presence of the very body of Christ, or Welch's grape juice becomes the life-giving blood of Christ, or, or just water that we pour from the tap. When we, when we talk about it in terms of the work that God does, it's not just water from the sink. It, it's water that cleanses us from sin and serves as a, as a reminder 
of our status as children of God. Jesus was an expert at taking the most ordinary things and showing their extraordinary power. He told parables and stories about sheep and about children and, and fish and wheat and, and used them to show the, the never-ending uh, love of God and the grace that is present therein. Throughout the stories of the scripture, I challenge you to read but a few pages and to miss an example of God's transforming work in the lives of people. In fact, when it comes to a transforming God, God does God's best work in the hearts of human beings. Like Abram and Sarai, who were a childless, aging couple uh, with no sense of fulfillment in life, who, who God takes and, and simply says, go, and, and they follow God's word, and they go to the land that he shows them, and he radically transforms them, changing their name to Abraham and Sarah, giving them the status as the father and mother of all people, and using them to be a blessing to others. He does the same with Moses, who was a, um, uh, who was a stuttering, spineless uh, shepherd, and gives him the power and authority to go and stand before Pharaoh and to proclaim in the voice of God, let my people go. He does it with Gideon. Gideon in the book of Judges, uh, chapter 6 through 9, who uh, is, is fearful of the armies of the Midianites. He's hiding in a wine press, and God almost mockingly says, get up, mighty warrior. And he says, I'm the, who am I? I'm the weakest. I'm the least in my family. And through God's power, transforms him into one who's able to lead, lead armies and nations against the enemy. God does God's best transforming work in the lives of people. And in the story of Saul, Saul of Tarsus, Saul who would become Paul, the apostle of Christ, God saves his best work for this story. The story of Saul who we'll be exploring both through the accounts of Paul in the book of Acts and also through his letters over the next seven weeks. It begins with the story that we heard in Acts chapter 9. But even before that, there's a bit about who this man Saul was. Saul was from Tarsus, a, a large metropolitan town in the Roman Empire in the very heart of what is today modern Turkey. Saul was raised uh, there by his very religious and faithful uh, Jewish parents. His parents had been a rabbi, his father had been a rabbi, a Pharisee, he also had been a tent maker. He worked in making these uh, tents out of goat hair, and, and Saul had been apprenticed in that very thing. And sometime around the age of 12 or 13, Saul became apprenticed to a rabbi, Gamaliel, in Jerusalem. And so his parents sent him off, and he lived in Jerusalem. And for the next years of his life, he became trained in the ways of becoming a Pharisee. Now, when Jesus comes around in the stories of Jesus, Jesus will say many bad things about the Pharisees. The Pharisees had a tendency to take good things and twist them and to make them burdensome on the people of God. The Pharisees had a way of taking the very blessing of a life lived for God and making it a burden or a curse that was impossible for anyone to live into. But in their day and time, Pharisees were greatly respected. They knew the law of God, and they practiced that with blamelessness and with holiness. And Saul of Tarsus, Saul the Pharisee, he was the exemplar of what a life looked like lived for this God. So much so that when this new religion, this new understanding of Judaism, this way about this Messiah who the Romans had crucified, and yet some had said 
God had raised him from the dead. Well, that became a bit of a threat to the way of Saul's life. And so we pick this up in Acts chapter 7, where this one named Stephen, this follower of Jesus, refuses to shut up about the one who had been raised from the dead, no matter how much they were threatening his life. Chapter 7, verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin, or the Jewish ruling council, heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at him at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. It's hard to overstate just what a bad dude Saul was. I think sometimes we allow this transformation to happen so quickly that we don't put into full context the things that Saul did. He zealously, angrily, violently persecuted this fledgling Christian movement. So much so that when he comes to describing the grace of God later on, he will consider himself the chief of all sinners. The worst of all because he persecuted the very church of God. That's what makes his transformation all the more striking. As he seeks out orders to go to Damascus to destroy the church that was beginning to form there. There was this new church plant up in Damascus, and all Saul could think about was getting up there and dragging them into prison. Saul was not only complicit in the stoning of Stephen, but he was actively involved and guilty of the arrest and murder of the early Christians. And Saul was changed. But God intervened, and Saul's life was radically transformed. This is what we see in Saul. Saul tells us a little bit about a God who, just as God does in nature and can transform a, a junk food addicted caterpillar into a beautiful butterfly, has a way of intervening into our lives regardless of where we are and giving us that moment where everything changes. For Saul, he puts it over and over again this way. He says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Jerusalem, how I intensely persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age and my own people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But God set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, 
I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Saul tells his story in the plainest of terms to say, here is who I was. But God intervened. And now my life has been transformed. Paul was the worst of sinners. He was the great arch persecutor of the church. But God intervened in his life and changed him and empowered and enabled him to become the first great preacher of Christianity. Now, not all of us will have a Damascus Road experience. I know that as we got together and began to tell our stories of the way that we came to faith, the way that we come to believe, many of us would say it's always just been a part of my life. I grew up going to church, and there will be others who will have stories not unlike uh, Saul's experience in Damascus. There was some major conversion moments, some major change in our life. Others of us are still waiting on that. We, we understand this religion thing, this faith thing. We're beginning to come to terms with what Christianity is on our own, but we've yet to experience the real presence and power of Christ. Not all of us will be given this Damascus Road experience. Flannery O'Connor wrote about Saul's experience. She said, I reckon that the Lord knew that the only way to make a Christian out of that one was to knock him off his horse. And that was true for the apostle. It was true for Saul. But even though each of us might not have a Damascus Road experience, each of us can have the same transforming power of Jesus Christ active in our own life. Each of us can have what Paul calls his but God moment. He talks about it in, in the book of Ephesians when he speaks about the status of all of us before we receive the grace of God. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. All of us lived among at one time, gratified the desires of our flesh, followed its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were deserving of wrath. But because of God's great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It has been by grace that you have been saved. Nothing that we've done on our own, none of our accomplishments, none of the, the goals that we set, none of the things that we have for us, none of those things bring about transformation. It's only by the grace of God. And sometimes it happens very quickly and suddenly. And sometimes it happens gradually over time. But the same Holy Spirit that was at work in the life of Saul, who became Paul, is alive and at work today if we are open to experiencing that in our hearts. So I don't know where each of us are today. Maybe there are stories that could be told about, you know, I was, I was, um, I was selfish and, and self-absorbed, but God transformed me, and now I, I get life from serving others. Or I was stingy and tight-fisted, but God uh, broke me open to generosity and open-handedness towards others. I, I was dead in my spiritual life and, and isolated from God, but, but God made himself known to me, and now I am alive again. Don't we want transformation? Don't we want transformation? Don't we want to be able to show others like that beautiful butterfly that we know is inside, the way that God can make us into something beautiful to tell of the goodness of God? Let's pray together. God, we ask for your transforming power to be at work within each of our hearts. 
Lord, some of us don't even know the places where we need it. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would wake us up, would identify those places in our lives where your Holy Spirit is indeed needed. Bring about transformation. Awaken us and change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.